Good morning, everyone. Okay, it's good to be here with you all. It's a pleasure, joy. Thank you for being here. We are in Philippians chapter 3 now. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Um, you'll perhaps notice as we go along that we stop at a... At a um, uh, a spot that's that uh, seems a little bit premature, so we'll be we'll be in part two next week as we as we look at uh, the next few verses following verse nine. But there was just too much to explain uh, to fit into one message, um, so we'll do what we can today with Philippians three one through nine. And uh, let me read it to you, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of trying to pay for something with your bank card, but then finding for whatever reason that the card doesn't work. It's a pretty awful experience, um, especially if it's the sort of situation where, you know, maybe you're at the petrol station or you're at a, uh, at a restaurant and it's not as simple as just putting things back on the shelves and walking out the store with your tail between your legs. No, like you've already consumed what you're supposed to pay for and now you find your card doesn't work. So you frantically search through your pockets or maybe you excuse yourself to go to the car and dig around in your cubbyhole and, and uh, various... Uh, nooks and crannies in your car trying to find five rand here, ten rand there, right? Fifty cents. You go from full confidence. You're not worried at all. 
you have full confidence that you have what you need to pay for something. You go from that to scrambling around trying to find this or that, and then progressively there's the desperation of realizing that maybe you don't have anything that will work. This is what Philippians 3 is all about. Being sure that your confidence is solid. Being sure that you've placed your confidence for salvation in the right thing. That your bank card, so to speak, is in good working order and with sufficient funds. So that when you try to use it, it will work. The last thing we want with salvation, brothers and sisters, is to have a false confidence. To think we are fine, only to find out we actually have no reason, no reason to be allowed into the presence of God. Only to find that our sins have not been paid for, and the punishment they deserve still awaits us. Our three points today, um, well, we've got three points today. First point, beware of false gospels with false confidences. Beware of false gospels with false confidences. Three verses one through three, Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. Glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul says here, finally, or at least that's what most of your translations will say, but we're only halfway through the book. So what's going on here? Um, what's really going on is that this is really just a transition phrase. And depending on where you find it, it could also just be translated uh, and so or so continuing on or something along those lines. And that would be the better way to understand it here since Paul's not close to finishing the letter He's been speaking about Timothy and Epaphroditus and their godly lives that are worthy of honoring, worthy of imitating. And now he transitions to warning the Philippians about false teaching. But the first thing he says to them is rejoice in the Lord. Now rejoicing and joy is a theme that we find throughout this letter. And time and time again, Paul includes a call to joy or an expression of his own joy right alongside information that could easily cause discouragement. As Paul launches here into some serious warnings, some strong, bold warnings about false teachers presenting a false gospel, he reminds the Philippians that despite these serious threats, they can and should have joy as they trust in the Lord who reigns over all. In the second half of verse 3, Paul tells the Philippians that he's about to repeat some teaching. Oh, sorry, the second half of verse 1. 
Paul tells the Philippians that he's about to repeat some teaching that he's already given him. And this doesn't seem to be teaching he's already given them in this letter, but rather that he would have already given them uh, during some previous visits with them. And he says to them here basically, look, I'm about to repeat myself, but don't check out. This is very important. With a subject as important as this, I'm happy to repeat myself. And he says that it's for your safety. It's for your good. Pay attention. Paul is about to launch into some teaching here about false gospels and about the essence of true saving faith. And there is no more important topic. So what is the essence of saving faith? It is in what we trust in for salvation. What our confidence is in. It is the grounds we stand on for salvation. It's the answer our hearts give to the question, why should I not be punished for my sins? For what reason? And why should I be allowed into the presence of a holy God? That is where our trust is. That is where our confidence is, is in how we answer those questions. Paul speaks strongly about those who teach a false gospel with false confidences. In verse 2, he calls these false teachers dogs. And he does not mean dogs like cuddly pets who are treated like they're part of the family. It's more like a dirty, mangy, stray dog slinking around in the shadows, trying to steal whatever scraps it can from the rubbish dumps, and more than eager to snap at anyone who might try to pet it. This was the view of dogs in Paul's world, and that's the image he's describing here. He also calls these people evildoers. Evildoers, a strong term. But again, rightly understood, there is nothing more evil than teaching a false gospel that promises salvation, but lulls people who are still lost and still hellbound into a false confidence and into thinking that their souls are safe when they are not. Paul then goes on to call these false teachers mutilators of the flesh. And it's this phrase that lets us know what particular group of false teachers he's warning the Philippians about. And that is the Judaizers. The Judaizers. Um, We see Paul raise concerns about them in a number of other places in the New Testament as well. Judaizers are essentially uh, people who would teach that if you are not ethnically Jewish, you must convert to Judaism before you can become a Christian before you can become saved. And an essential part of that was circumcision. Judaizers would teach that observance of Old Testament Mosaic covenant rituals were necessary for salvation, were necessary to be accepted by God. Faith in Jesus is not enough. And the chief ritual, as we said, that tended to be emphasized was circumcision. This was a key ritual for Old Testament believers. It was a way that boys were marked from young, uh, from just eight days after birth, 
ideally, as being set apart for God and committed to living a, a life of holiness and obedience to Him. And then if you were an adult convert to Judaism, you were expected to undergo circumcision as an adult. But where these Judaizers are getting things especially wrong is not just in suggesting that circumcision should be done. It's in the confidence they're putting in the circumcision. The fact that they view it as essential. Even though circumcision was important under the Mosaic Covenant, it was never something that had the power to save people. It was just a sign of being one of God's people. It's much like wearing a ring on your left hand, your left hand ring finger, right? Having this ring on my hand does not make me married. I could be married without having this ring on. But wearing the ring is a sign of the fact that I am married. When the Judaizers insisted that non-Jews must be circumcised in order to be accepted by God, they were presenting a false gospel with a false ground for salvation. A false reason to be confident of salvation. And because this false confidence is so spiritually harmful and dangerous, Paul refers to the circumcision they're promoting as a mutilation of the flesh. It has no spiritual value, nothing at all. In contrast, Paul highlights the essence of the true gospel in verse 3. This is a beautiful verse. We are the circumcision. That's the true circumcision. God's true people. Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What's this verse saying? We are the true circumcision. That's um, uh, We are those who are truly God's people. Even in the Old Testament, we see God talking about the need to be circumcised, to have a heart that is circumcised. So the important thing is a heart that is devoted to God, not just the ritual. Paul is saying here that though though these false teachers want to insist that only those who have received physical circumcision are God's people, the reality is that all Christians, all those who have been given a new heart, all those who have put their faith in Jesus are God's people. Who worship by the Spirit. Christians have received the Holy Spirit who makes us spiritually dead hearts beat and opens our spiritually blind eyes to see that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior. Our confidence is not in our devotion to fulfilling religious rituals. It is Jesus himself and Jesus alone. And that's exactly how this passage continues. We glory in Christ Jesus. We boast about Jesus. We boldly, confidently point to him as our only reason to be confident before God. We say wholeheartedly, He has paid the penalty for our sins, and He has paid it all. He is our Savior. And we put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. When Paul talks about the flesh in some places in the New Testament, 
he's referring to our fallen sinful nature, our, our sinful tendencies and inclinations. But sometimes, and this is one of those places, he uses the term to refer to any and all things about us that are of this world. When he says here that true believers put no confidence in the flesh, he means that you and I must put no confidence in anything to do with us. We must put no confidence in anything that the world would look to in us as setting us uh, apart, as, as, uh, as, as making us superior in the eyes of the world. It's not about pedigree, it's not about position, it's not about wealth, it's not about gifts, etc., etc. It is all Jesus and only Jesus. Secondly, we see Paul's previous false confidences. Prior to becoming saved, Paul put confidence in the flesh. Verse 4 says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, in fact, if anyone else thinks he has reason for the flesh, for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, If anyone could boast in the things of this world, if anyone could, could, could try and be saved on the basis of, of their worldly accomplishments, their worldly pedigree, their worldly CV, their background, their standing in society, their morality, their religion, it is me. And he lists some specifics. He was circumcised on the eighth day. So not only was he circumcised, but he was not an adult convert to Judaism. He was born into a, Judy, uh, a, a Jewish home and baptized, I mean, sorry, but not baptized, circumcised as a baby. He was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of, Inge, of Benjamin. He was ethnically an Israelite, part of God's chosen people group. And on top of that, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, which was the only tribe that remained faithful to God's appointed monarchy to God's appointed uh, kingly line when um, Israel split away from Judah. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So though Paul had grown up uh, in, in, in a city outside the land of Israel, he had grown up speaking Hebrew and strictly keeping to Hebrew culture. He was not what was called uh, at the time a Hellenist someone who had adopted Greek culture. He was strictly Hebrew. And as to the law, okay, so that's his pedigree, that's his family pedigree, that's his lineage, his background, now his performance. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. Of the various sects of Judaism, he'd been part of the most strict and studious one. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. He had been so concerned for what he believed was the truth that he had given himself to tracking down Christians who he believed to be false teachers and throwing them in prison. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, of course, nobody's truly blameless. The Bible, um, and certainly we see this, especially in the Gospels, in the New Testament, uh, there's this reminder that ultimately what God's looking for is obedience from the heart. 
And oftentimes we can be keeping rules externally, but disobeying God on a heart level. But in terms of keeping external rules and checking all the boxes, doing all all the externally right things, Paul did it perfectly. But none of these things could save Paul. None of these things would make him uh, somebody that God would look at and find more savable. None of these things would make God incline himself to him and say, okay, I, I, I have a stronger desire to save this one. Salvation, brothers and sisters, is based 100% on Jesus and Jesus alone. When salvation was extended to Paul and it's extended to us, it is by grace alone. It is not on the basis of anything we bring to the table. The first question to ask yourself here is this. Where have you put your confidence for acceptance by God? Can you say like Paul that you've put no confidence in the flesh? Not in your ethnicity or nationality or citizenship. Not the faithful religion of the family you grew up in. Not your church attendance since young. Not the fact that you've been baptized. Not the respectableness or prominence in any way of any of your family members. Not your intelligence, your education level, not your wealth or your impressive job. Not how popular you are or how respected you are. Not your track record of avoiding certain sinful things. Not the good deeds you have done. Not your tithes or offerings or prayers or fastings. Not your singing ability. Not your preaching ability. Not any of your gifts. Nothing to do with you. Nothing at all. We're so inclined to think this way. So inclined to think this way. To put confidence in whatever the, the world might appreciate about us. Whatever the world might be impressed uh, with about us. But God does not see us the way the world sees us. We have nothing to bring to the table. Do not put your confidence in anything but Jesus and Jesus alone. A second question to ask yourself, even if you know, even if you know your theology well, you know that you can't contribute anything to your salvation. You can't do anything to make God love you more. Let me ask you, do you sometimes slip into thinking and feeling as if your basis for salvation is Christ plus something. We've talked about this in previous weeks, but it's worth repeating. A good test is this. If you have a bad day, do you feel like you can't pray at the end of that day? Say you're finding yourself particularly irritable, and you realize that you've spoken multiple times through the day to multiple people in ways that you shouldn't. And now it's 
an opportunity to pray and you just feel like you can't talk to God, like you have no right to approach Him. If so, you are forgetting the proper grounds of your confidence. We are sinners. We would never be able to approach God apart from Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf, even on our very, very best day. Our only hope, and it is a confident, certain hope, it is a bold hope, on any day, no matter how good or bad, is Jesus and His perfectly righteous life and His death in our place. That is why we can approach God. God looks on us and sees Jesus, and because of Jesus, we can always approach Him. And as Hebrews puts it, we can and must approach Him boldly. Boldly. Because Jesus has paved the way for us. I want to encourage you to evaluate your heart regularly. To catch yourself when you slip into this. Because I think most of us do it from time to time. I, want you to, I don't want you to be an insecure Christian. I want you to be a confident Christian. Because Jesus has paid it all. I want you to pray prayers like, honest, raw prayers like, Dear God, you know how irritable I've been all day. And you know how I've tried to make excuses for it all day and to downplay my sin. You know the shame I'm feeling right now. You know I'm feeling like I've failed my spouse. I've set an awful example for my children. I've failed you. And God, you know I don't want to be around anyone right now because of my shame. I don't feel like I can talk to you. But God, I'm forgetting Jesus. Remind me that He has paid it all. Remind me that I can come to You with any and all of my sins and know that when I ask to be forgiven, I will be forgiven. And when I ask for Your help to change, You will give me the help that I need. Remind me of the Gospel. Thirdly, let's look at Paul's new confidence and treasure. Verse 7 says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. There's two things going on here. First is that Paul recognizes that only Jesus can save, and therefore the rest of his supposed confidence is worthless. It's pointless. All these other things that he might present to God as a basis for God's acceptance of him is an absolute waste of his time. Imagine scrambling around trying to pull together 
every little thing you can to pay for something. Perhaps even to trade for something. That scenario I was talking about earlier. You're trying to trade in your car now. You're getting so desperate, right? And you pile up all these things that you're wanting to offer. Okay, will will, will this work as payment? And this is graphic, but Paul's graphic here in this passage. And you take a step back and look at this pile of supposedly worthwhile things. You know, maybe some fancy watch you put in there and your car and, you know, thousands of rands. And you look at this pile of, of, of things that you're trying to present as worth, as, as worth something. And you realize that it's a pile of dung, a pile of feces. That's actually an accurate translation of this word, rubbish. It's scubalon, it's feces, it's dung. Which reminds us, right, of Isaiah 64.6. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Or your translation might say filthy rags. And again, graphic. What's this actually referring to? It's referring to a menstrual pad that has been used. Filthy, dirty. You don't want to take that and present it to God and say, Here, isn't this worth something? Can't I come into your presence on the basis of this? No. We need to realize this, brothers and sisters. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Anything we might offer to God is dung, it's feces. It's worth absolutely nothing. So realizing this, Paul throws all his previous grounds for confidence away. And he turns to Jesus and Jesus alone as his grounds for acceptance with God. The second thing to note here is that Paul has made sacrifices, significant sacrifices to follow Jesus. He's turned his back on his previous life, his previous world, in order to follow Jesus. And he's done so gladly. Listen to these verses again. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Remember, Paul was well respected in Judaism. He was well positioned to keep climbing the ladder to further success and position and power. In Jewish society, he had arrived. He was everything a mother and father would hope for. Remember our memory verse from a few weeks ago? Luke 9, 23 to 24. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up his cross, die to himself, die to his pursuits, 
Let him no longer live for himself, but let him live for me. Luke 14 elaborates on this theme. Verse 26 of Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's comparative language there. Compared to how you love me and value me, it must be as if you hate even your closest relationships, even the things you value the most. Verse 33 of Luke 14, Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's the call of Jesus. We must be willing to lose friends, to disappoint our parents, to have our children view us as weird, to perhaps have the love of our life turn away from us in order to follow Jesus. We must be willing to have our lives absolutely turned upside down to lose everything. This is undoubtedly what happened to Paul. And what does he say? What does he say? After enduring beatings and stonings and shipwrecks, what does he say as he sits here in prison, possibly facing execution? He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. I count all things as rubbish that I may gain Christ. That's his new treasure, Jesus. Jesus is who he lives for. Jesus is what his entire life is all about. It's like the parable from Matthew thirteen forty four. The kingdom of heaven, heaven is like a treasure, a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then he covered it up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Takes absolutely everything he has, all his other possessions, and sells it so that he can have the treasure. The treasure of Jesus. Now, our circumstances may be different to Paul's in quite a few ways today, but in many other ways, they're much the same. Most of my close friends from high school uh, keep their distance from me. Some have intentionally cut me off completely, have no contact with me because of my commitment to Christ. I know a number of you have had conflicts with your parents because of your commitment to Jesus. And I think of someone like Akani, currently living in a wonderful neighborhood in Pretoria East. He's a manager at Ford. The boy from the village is living the life. He's arrived. But he's going to resign that job and move back to the village. He's going to lose a great, steady monthly income to instead face a lot of uncertainty, honestly, um, almost guaranteed, month in and month out about where uh, where the money is going to come from to, to support his family as he labors to start a church there from, from absolute scratch. Not even one person there 
to start with. I'm sure there's plenty of people there who will look at him and think, this guy's nuts. He's crazy. What's he doing? He's counted all things that the world might appreciate, the world might look up to. He's counted them as lost, as lost for the surpassing worth of following Christ. Jesus is his life. Following Jesus requires counting all things as loss, but it is well worth it to lose everything and gain Christ. So this is the wonderful truth of this passage. Jesus is all the grounds we need for salvation with God. We need nothing else. Jesus has paid it all. We must put our full and total trust and confidence in Him and turn away from putting any trust in anything else. And secondly, it is well worth it to follow Jesus, to count all things as loss. It is, there is a surpassing worth in knowing Jesus and living for Him. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Paul. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus. God, I pray that you'll help us to believe these truths fully so that we can enjoy them fully day in and day out. We can, we can always be reminded that even as life is difficult, even as we fail in so many ways, we have access to the King of Kings, the God of the universe, because Jesus, Jesus has secured the way. Jesus has paid it all completely, fully, and nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. So give us assurance of salvation, a steady, steadfast confidence of salvation and fill us with joy at the relationship we have for you and at the, the glories that will be revealed as you return and the eternity that we will spend with you. Amen.